the foundation of the holy life is in this uh, monastic tradition. The purpose of it is to be uh, contented because if we're not, if we have no contentment, then we're always, you know, the mind's always desiring something. If you you uh, always think of a better place to be or how to improve it or the mind will, the desires will provide all kinds of alternatives that would seem better or more desirable than what you're experiencing right now. So they're like an alms mendicant, the bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, pattern is one who's content with uh, four requisites. Shelter for the night, bindabhata food, food that's put in the alms bowl, uh, robes made of bhangsakula cloth, which is usually like throwaway material, and uh, basic medicine, so that they, these are the four requisites, <clears throat> so that they're necessary for survival. So like sex isn't necessary for survival, so is brahmacharya, and food is necessary, so it's allowed. So then going forth is uh, like going into this, into the bapacha is, called, is uh, translated as going forth. It means going into the unknown. So your contentment with the four requisites is, doesn't mean that, that you can just make yourself contented as an act of will. It's through observing the suffering of a discontentment of anxiety and worry and all these mental states worrying about the future. <clears throat> so if you were just a, a wandering alms mendicant in India, you know, where am I going to sleep next? Who, will I get enough food? Will, you know, if I get sick, will there be somebody to take care of me? And on and on like this, one could endlessly worry about the requisites. So then we observe this, notice uh, that it, like it's not a, an imperative that you have to be content because that, that is not the condition that leads to contentment is commandments, but reflection Observing, and one thing is observing discontentment. <clears throat> and seeing the, the dukkha of being discontented, complaining mind, uh, dwelling on what you don't like or what irritates you here or what you don't want to be here or wanting to be somewhere else because you're tired of living here. <clears throat> so observing these kind of desires, getting to know them. So sometimes this is misunderstood, like when we make these, uh, these samana-sanya reflections imperatives and it's like you should be grateful for the shelter, you should, you know, you're depending on the gifts of others and you're, and you should be grateful for all this. <clears throat> this is nagging, this is like, you know, just uh, irritating nagging of, that we can 
you know, do to each other. Shut up, watch your mind, be content with what you have. Don't cause any waves. Is not really reflective understanding that leads to contentment. So it's a, you know, contentment is a state of that you begin to experience as you let go of discontentment. But you can't, just suppressing discontentment doesn't bring contentment. Uh, gratitude also, feeling grateful, saying you should be grateful for the alms food and shelter for the night is is an uh, imperative, you know, tells you what, how you should be. But then uh, that doesn't create, that, not the, that doesn't lead to gratitude. That oftentimes leads to feeling guilty because you don't feel grateful maybe right now. You should be, but you're not. Or it becomes, we can become very neurotic and guilt-ridden or resentful. So the gratitude comes through reflection on, you know, through contemplating the, that which has been made available to us. Uh, the support, the generosity, the kindness extended to us, the opportunities. So I found these, you know, contentment and gratitude, kind of a, when, when I began to really experience contentment and gratitude, then of course, you know, the, uh, the reflective abilities were sharpened to, at their best because I'm not thinking anymore of, you know, if I find a better place or <clears throat> better teacher or whatever, then better food, better, whatever. my mind goes into that mode, then I'm, you know, I can, any place I'm in, I can, I can find faults with. I've got good critical faculties, so I've never been in a monastery that I couldn't find fault with it. <clears throat> and if I dwelt on the things I don't like about it, then I'm quite unhappy with it, you know, and I, <clears throat> hear about some place that's better and I want to go there. But that's, uh, you know, that's a kind of normal conditioning, isn't it? In the, in the materialistic world that we were born into and grew up, and we're influenced by is that's how we're conditioned, culturally conditioned to. We can always conceive of something being better, you know, of wanting a better quality or more opportunities or more fairness or something that, you know, we can always see that demand our rights and think about ourselves getting our rights. And then if we don't feel we have all our rights on the level that we, we would like them to be, then we feel angry, resentful, and so the suffering increases in our lives. So the, the life of the Samana is almost the polar opposite of that, rather than, than uh, striving for the best. And the four requisites are, are <clears throat> the standard is based on kind of the lowest possibility. You know, it's not based on high quality requisites. <clears throat> so 
So the idealism of the samana, you know, one who's content with little and easy to take care of, uh, grateful for what is offered, living the holy life, these are the ideals. These are ideals for the holy life. And then I uh, emphasize what an ideal is. It's a mental conception, isn't it? And it's uh, and when you idealize something, you can make it perfect. You know, the perfect monk or nun. You know, the the saint or the totally selfless, pure, never angry, never upset, always grateful and humble, full of compassion and joy. Never stumbles, always mindful, wherever they are. That's or you can take it on into all these superlatives that you can possibly think. And that is admittedly the best. So it's important because we come from very idealistic cultures. We, we idealize how things should be. And ideals then are useful, they're, they're very high and they're perfect, and but they have no life in them. Ideals aren't alive. They're rather fixed. So the ideal for the bhikkhu at the time of the Buddha and the ideal for the bhikkhu at the, at the present day is the very same thing, really. It hasn't changed at all. See, the Buddha Rupa here in the shrine room is, a, is an idol, an ideal. It's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's a symbol, but it, has, it doesn't feel anything, doesn't know anything. <clears throat> so then uh, reflecting on ideals, are, they're inspired. What do, what do ideals do to you? You know, when you, you get, I, I get inspired with ideals. They uplift, you know, the, the goodness, the saintliness, the purity, the, the honesty, the integrity, the, the selflessness, the humility. And you think if somebody's really humble, selfless, and good, and you feel, oh, that's really inspiring. So uh, uh, reflecting on how language, how, you know, how these concepts do affect co- our consciousness. If we want to inspire it, we we think uh, we use superlatives. In uh, Mahayana Buddhism, you know, some of those suttas they start out with, you know, it's all hyperbole. Everything's the ultimate absolute bestest with 84,000 purified arahants and bodhisattvas and, and you know, goes into, these are, this is a way of using language. Hyperbole is and the superlative use of, of words has an effect on consciousness. For those of us who, who kind of are more cynical by nature, it doesn't work so well. <clears throat> if you're a skeptic and a bit on the cynical side, you, you think, oh God, all this Devadas and rubbish. The Buddha never said that. You go into, you want something factual, historically accurate. How many Devadas were, were actually present? <laughs> Or are there any? What is it? Uh, David does really exist or not? <clears throat> so a kind of cynical person in the, that finds that, that bit over the top. We want to be more reasonable about it. So we can worship reason as an ideal. 
ability to reason, be reasonable, sensible, not over the top, not exaggerated. I'm a reasonable man, sensible. I'm not like that one over there that goes into absolute states of ecstasy when thinking about all the devadas up in the heavenly realm. I say, bring one, name one, bring one here and let me see it. So reason is another ideal, being reasonable. And, and our civilizations are very much based on the uh, ideal of, of reason, being reasonable. Logic, reason is raised up to the kind of ultimate human attainment. And so this is not to, I'm not criticizing reason, but pointing out what we tend to, you know, cling to and hold to and, and demand from life. We want a society that's reasonable and fair. Should be, you know, like here in, in Britain, it should be totally fair here. The government and the boss and everything. <laughs> so these are just pointing to the, the how language, you know, we, we are attached to our own thoughts, ideas, memories. And then we, the present moment then is, is, you know, when we think about the, place we're living in, the food we have, the robe or the, you know, whatever's happening here and now, comparing it to the ideal, then we feel, well, you know, we complain about it because it's not what it should be. So then, then this um, reflection on the way it is is not based on an ideal, but it, it's an invitation, a kind of encouragement to observe suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way of non-suffering. And the way of non-suffering doesn't mean that your life becomes ideal, because this realm is that we're living in, the human realm, is not an ideal realm. It's not, it's not, it's a, it's a living, changing, vibrating realm. It's not static like an ideal. So life at the time of the Buddha, the historical Buddha, in India, 2,549 years ago, was qualitatively different, I assume, you know. India, then no electricity, no underfloor heating. They had all kinds of other, you know, cultural attitudes that don't make any sense to us now. <laughs> When you read the vineyard, we thought, how could they come up with a rule like that? <laughs> I don't even know what they're talking about. Obviously, with something very real at the time. So the cultural changes and the uh, variations on greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, can you know have their different manifestations. But the human situation is, is pretty much the same thing. You know, it hasn't really changed at all. We're still, you know, born, get old, get sick and die. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Separation from the lights and having to be with what we don't like and not getting what we want. All this is suffering. 
So that has a, you know, that's human, that's our humanity. This realm isn't going to be what we want or what should be, but it is the way it is. <clears throat> Being human, having a human body, And be you know being the having the character, the tendencies, the attitudes, the faults that that each one of us have are maybe you know far away from any ideal that we might hold dear, but it is the way it is. So knowing this, the way it is, is the, now this takes awakened attention. Sati Sampachanya, Sati Panya. And this is like reflecting on the way it is, like this. We're awakening and observing. We're not, we're not uh, trying to figure out how it is according to concepts anymore. <clears throat> you know, and describe it and judge it accordingly, but just like this, from the way that I'm experiencing it in this position. So it's a different use, isn't it? It's a, this is intuitive awareness rather than being reasonable and logical about anything. It's not defining or criticizing or preferring, but awakening and observing. Whatever way it is right now, you know, in, in its quality, uh, whatever quality I'm experiencing, it's, all qualities are impermanent. You know, so you're, you're awakening and observing the conditioned realm that we're very much that very much affects us all the time. You know, we're in a in a physical body, uh, a mind, uh, conscious. We're conscious and we're conditioned to think. To we have retentive memories. We hold memories. Uh, we have. Various, you know, degrees of happiness, suffering, joy, sorrow, hope and despair. So the awakenedness and awakened attention observes the way things are. It's like this. So I can't know from, you know, if I'm telling you how you should be feeling right now, would be a kind of stupidity on my part, because I know what I'm feeling right now, from this point, you know, but how you're feeling, only you can know. You know, the you're feeling healthy or sickly or bright or sleepy or whatever. So how is it, you know, what is it like? Knowing, this is direct knowing, not knowing about. Knowing about an ideal monk or nun is one thing. That, then you get into the idealism, the, the beautiful images. That's knowing about. But knowing the reality of being human at this very moment of having a human body, emotions, conditioning, memories, the age you are affects things, the age of your body and the weather, the time of day and night and so forth. It all has, you know, it has effect when all these conditions, conditions come together, then this is the result. So, uh, what we can do, how we can be free from suffering is by awakening to the way it is. 
So now, say for example, if I feel discontented with the way it is, I, you know, I can either follow that and think, well, you know, we've got to change something here because I just don't like the way you're doing this and uh, I've got a better idea. So I'm going to insist that you do it my way. And then now the Sangha has to agree. I can't just command anymore. I'm no longer a supreme commander. So I have to consult. And then they say, no, we, we don't agree. And I don't get my way. And then I feel annoyed or, uh, well, if you're, if you're not going to do what I want, I'm going to leave. Now that's been very human in a way, isn't it? That we can all understand that feeling of wanting one's own way. You know, thinking I, I really have a good idea that, that you all should uh, accept my ideas better than anything you have. And so we should do it. And it might even be true, maybe my idea is better. But in the process, that's not the point, isn't it, having a better idea or doing it a better way, but in awakening to this. Seeing the suffering of myself trying to, to, to get my way, and when I don't get my way and you don't agree, then I feel annoyed, disappointed, offended, is like this. So we learn from our humanity, you know, because the, the, this is, we're not trying to say you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be conceited thinking that you know how to do things better than the rest of us. A good samana isn't conceited, they're humble. <clears throat> So then you, you know, you can throw this at you and then you start feeling guilty. I'm so conceited. <laughs> but uh, also if we, you know, we suffer from conceit, so we awaken to what it is. We learn from the way it is. So if I have conceited views, You know, on the self, you know, say, you, uh, Ajahn Samadhi, you're too conceited. A, a bhikkhu of your years, practicing all these years, and giving these incredibly inspiring reflections in the morning. <laughs> Should be past conceit on, of any kind. That's another idea, isn't it? Of, of that that you don't want me to be conceited, do you? You want me to be wise all the time. So there's, you know, kind of sense of, of uh, you know, checking me out, seeing if I slip. So awakening is observing this, how we project onto each other all kinds of things, project onto the place our own views. Now there's nothing wrong with that in saying you shouldn't do it, but observe it, learn from it. How do we, how do we, what do we, what is Chitters, Forest Monastery, you know, what, what do, how do we create it? Because right now, say, it is, it is what it is. But then we have certain views about Chithurst and memories of it and 
and uh, so forth that we we regard as Chitter's Forest Monastery, but the reality, the reality here and now, is that that I'm sitting here on this mat, and the words Chitter's Forest Monastery come into my consciousness. And then if I follow that, then it then it will bring up other associated memories and so forth. Chitters is like this, blah, 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 blah. I can go into, you know, all kinds of reminiscences, memories, old times, experiences and so forth, and, and uh, views, opinions. But the reality of the moment is that this is, this, these are words, these are concepts. And that, that this is reflecting on the nature of this. This is a thought. Chitters is a thought. And then, then it does have an effect. So, if you think of Chithurst, you feel this way. If you think of Amravati, you have another feeling. So, I mean, this, yet we could be in uh, India right now thinking of Chithurst and Amravati. Or we could think of India right now, <laughs> sitting with Chithurst. India's like this. And I've been to India many times. I know India and <laughs> the Indians are like this. <laughs> so what we're looking at, is, what I'm pointing to is this direct knowing. It's like this, thinking, words, concepts, like this. And then, then they do, if you know, they do bring up Memories and preferences, prejudices, views, opinions. Now people ask me about, you know, Mahayana and Hinayana and Theravada, Vajrayana and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I used to give kind of reasonable answers is because I, I like to be tolerant and appear kind of ecumenical because I don't like ideally I don't like kind of chauvinistic tendencies even though I have a few uh, But the, knowing this, the, you know, that when you're a so-called Buddhist in Britain, you know, you're, I'm a prominent Buddhist in Britain. This is what I'm told by others. <clears throat> so, you know, people expect me to come forth with pronouncements and wise sayings. Then this is a time where there's so much information. You go to a bookshop and, you know, there's a plethora of information on Buddhism, on all forms, on modern permutations and cults and sects and Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, Sarvastivada, Hinayana, Soko Gakkai, New Kadampa, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, and then it's Krishnamurti, a Buddhist. <laughs> what about Eckhart Toller? And Ramana Maharishi was—he uh, certainly talks like a Buddhist. Was he really a Buddhist or 
maybe a Bajeka Buddha or something like that, because we've got various categories we dump people in that don't quite fit the, the traditional pattern. Now this, you know, one could spend your, all your life trying to figure this stuff out and take positions. But uh, it's just words, isn't it? It's language, concept. And so what I'm pointing to is, is, is reflecting on thinking, because on, thinking you have to use words, thought. And thinking is a is a learned condition function. We learn it after we're born, isn't it? We're, so we we learn to think with when we have we, we're given language concepts. Mother, your mother says, uh, "Each uh, drink your milk, sweetie," and then you. You learn what milk is and drink and your reward. That's a good boy. Baby's drinking his milk. And then you say, I don't want this. <laughs> so you learn, you know, you keep there's a process of learning from reward and punishment. And the views and opinions of your parents, uh, your class, uh, society in general, you, you pick all that up. And so Mahayana, all these things are learned, you know, they're not, these are learned through uh, language, through various views and opinions of others. And then we have the, we have maybe adopt the prejudices of the particular group that we're identified with. You know, they say, well, Ajahn Sumedho, you're, Theravada monk, what do you think of the, the Dalai Lama? <laughs> Tibetan. Or what do you think of Thich Nhat Hanh? Or what's your opinion of uh, Zen Buddhism? And of course, you know, so this, then the, you know, if one is, if I'm pretty much uh, dyed in the wool, Patriot to Theravada, then I've got I can I can think of you know ways of slightly kind of criticizing. Well, you know, I admire them greatly, but <laughs> play tricks with your mind. The worst the worst thing is being an authority. <clears throat> So then, then seeing that this is the awareness and the opportunity to see through this, the way it, one's own preferences or prejudices and conceits, not in terms of trying to get rid of them or, or trying to deny that we have any such thoughts or feelings, but to see through them, to see them in terms of what they really are here and now. So right now, say, I think the word Dalai Lama, what is that, the reality of that right now, is it, it's a thought, isn't it? It's, it's awakening to, this is a thinking process of Dalai Lama, so that, that is a thought, it is what it is. And then a certain feeling arises from remembering or having views or Remembering meetings or things the Dalai Lama said or things you've read. So it proliferates on into various, uh, you know, either, you know, praise or criticism or whatever. But it's all the same thing, really. It's, it's, uh, it's this conceptual proliferating tendency. That starts from you start with one thought and then it triggers off uh, more, and so you go on, on and on into proliferations, conceptual proliferations, 
called papancha in Pali. Now you can be aware of that. Knowing that it's like this, thinking, getting caught up, being, you know, in thoughts and ideas. We all have a, what they call, button that gets pushed. You know, the point where you're most, where you lose it. <clears throat> you can be pretty mindful and cool about most things, but then when this happens, I blow my top. <clears throat> so this is, this is another way of training yourself, of observing where you're, where you lose it, where you, what arouses strong emotions, where do you, what is it, what happens, what configurations arise or, or things that happen that, that um, reach you, that suddenly bring you into a feeling of anger or resentment or rage. So that this is, you know, observing this, not saying, not trying to get rid of it. It's like this sense of I shouldn't, shouldn't have any buttons. I should be equanimous under all conditions. This is another ideal, but we're learning from the way it is, the way that the karma, the vipaka karma that each one of us has in the present moment which is not ideal, may not, may, you know, in terms of quality might be bad or evil or selfish or something, but it is the way it is. It's like this. So this encouragement to, this is awakened knowing. It's pure consciousness. It's not knowing about, it's not having views about anything, but knowing it's like this. And if you trust that direct knowing, and it's knowing that you don't know. Not knowing about this, not knowing about that, not understanding all the Abhidhamma or the tantric secrets or the, you know, the not knowing about all kinds of things is to know not knowing, to know doubt is doubt, see things as they are. This is what I call jnana, a knowing, a knowledge that is is not an acquired knowledge. It's not being an authority on Buddhism. You don't have to be an authority on Buddhism. But awaken to the way it is, to Dhamma. So then this this relationship of Buddha to Dhamma, Puto Tammo Sankho. So then when we, uh, the eight pairs, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, these are the blessed one's disciples. And then we think of them as persons. Who is a, who is one of these, uh, Sotapanna Magga, Sotapanna Pala, Sakata Kami Magga, Sakata Kami Pala, Anakami Magga, Anakami Pala, Arahanta Magga, Arahanta Pala. Did I get that right? <laughs> That's eight kinds of noble beings you're supposed to respect. So then you think, wonder what, you know, wonder what Sister Tani is. Is she a, is she Sotapanamaka or Pala? Or is she, maybe she's a Sakatakami, Pala, or should you respect a Sakatakami Pala more than a Sotapanamaka? 
I'm being absurd now, but I mean this is a total misuse of, of the of the teaching because you know when we're reflecting on on uh, sangha, the third refuge, and then we use the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. This sounds almost you know when I first heard this, I thought that doesn't inspire me in the least. The four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, and then, then you tended to see these noble beings as so remote a possibility. You know how could, you know. And then, then even in countries like Thailand and Sri Lanka, sometimes you'd hear monks saying there were no sotapannas, no stream enterers, and things like this. You'd hear rumors that even Ajahn Chah wasn't a stream enterer yet. There are no stream enterers. And this is always said by somebody who didn't know what they're talking about, but had opinions. Makes it easy if, you know, you can't get enlightened anymore, so you don't even try. Now, notice that these four stages are, you know, they're not for personal identification. It's not like having a BA, MA, PhD. Uh, that's not, it's not a sequence like that. So it's, it's, these are expedient means, ways of pointing to the here and now. So it's not a matter of you trying to figure out what I am or Ajahn Karuniko or Ajahn Tanya or anybody else, you know, trying to pinpoint, you know, who who is and who, who isn't. Because you don't know, you can't know that in any direct way. But you can know that you wonder what they are. You can, you you know, what what level of attainment is Ajahn Sumato? And you can know that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now that's direct knowing. That's not ignorance, is it? That's not being ignorant and stupid, like if you really sharp and understood all the Abhidhamma and had studied for years, had a PhD in Pali and Buddhist studies, and then you would be able to, you know, figure everything out here in this Dhamma hall, know where everybody's at. I met people like that, actually. (laughs) Always, you know, oozing conceit, authority, expert, but to know that you don't know doesn't sound like much of anything does it but what can you know at this time you know really know without knowing about knowing about is is an abstraction knowing about India and that when we're sitting here at Chitters even when we're in India, knowing India is another conceit, because we're, you know, India doesn't doesn't say it's India, does it? We call it India. England, it doesn't come up and announce itself and say, "I'm in, I'm England." We call this England. We're the culprits. We're projecting that word onto this piece of land. So it is what it is. It's like this. And this is direct knowing. In terms of puto tamo sankho, buddha dhamma sangha.
Now, in the knowing in this way, we have these these um, expedient teachings the Buddha left behind for the benefits. So, you know, when I think of the Four Noble Truths and so forth, I feel uh, gratitude, called katanyu. When I think of this, because I found this teaching so helpful, so, you know, so such a skillful, expedient means that I've used it for 40 years now. So it's, uh, you know, and I think of it just on the thought level, conceptual level, Four Noble Truths, a feeling of, uh, of Gatanyu arises. I think of the, of the historical Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, that established, that gave the first sermon. I feel gratitude. Now this is all, you know, this is, this is just skillful way of thinking, isn't it? Like to me the historical Buddha, as I've learned it through conditioning, you know, through what people say, what I've read in scriptures and that, and the, and the, uh, first sermon that he gave after his enlightenment, I found all these, you know, very, you know, gifts that I'm very grateful for because they feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to meet them, to be able to have the opportunity to study and practice them. So that gadanyu, uh, that gratitude, is a is a kind of heartfelt feeling. It's not just you know, an intellectual thing. It's a, you feel it emotionally in the heart. Sense of real gratitude. Well, that's a, that helps to, you know, that that's a good foundation for just living, being a human being at this time and this place. Contentment. Say, living here. Having, uh, you know, spent the past year here at Chitters, feeling of contentment rather than thinking, oh, I've come here, uh, now that Ajahn Sajita's away, I'm going to make you do it my way because I, I don't agree with everything that he does and um, I know a better way of doing it. <laughs> and think what would have happened if I'd done that in a, Coming here imposed my will, <clears throat> disregarding the agreements that the Sangha already had agreed upon and, and Ajahn Sajito. Now that would be very conceited of me, wouldn't it? Like, I know better what you need than he does or what, than you do. <laughs> That's conceit. I'm I'm more experienced and I have more authority, so I know what you need. You're just a beginner. <clears throat> so uh, you don't really understand anything yet. I know what you need. You just obey me. Now this is you know when I when I think this out, this is uh, this is what I recognize as conceit. Also, to to think that I'm not, that I really don't know enough yet. And trying to be humble, maybe. Trying to be humble and modest is also conceit. Because sometimes as monks and nuns, you know, if we're just blatant kind of insensitive characters and we say, well, I'm the best. And, and, and of course, in England, that just doesn't work at all. America, it might work. It might get... <laughs> you're sure to arouse all kinds of resistance if you announce, if you boast. <clears throat> but I can be 
modestly humble, and they say, oh, he's a... And that can be also conceit, can't it? It can be... You can play the game, in other words, put on the uniform. Because being modestly humble in England gets you further than boasting. <laughs> So whatever characters we have, that's not the, you know, it's not, they're not an obstruction. You know, conceit isn't a problem really, or ingratitude, or complaining, discontentment, grumbling, arrogance, and all. These are not really obstructions. You know, so it's not a matter of, of trying to get rid of them, but of learning from them. They are what they are. You know, they, they, they arise, they cease. So whatever kind of character you have, you know, it's not, you know, whether, you know, whether you're self-disparaging or you aggrandize yourself or you, you think you're the best or the worst or mediocre or whatever. Whatever you think you are, that's conceit, self-conceit. Even if you think you're just ordinary, nothing special. That's still conceit. Because it's a, it's a concept, isn't it, that you're attached to, an identity that you have about yourself. So when you listen, listen to it, it's, this listening isn't, isn't a critical listening, it's not, you know, judgmental, but it's recognizing, feeling that I'm like this is like this, the way it is. And then one is is directly knowing the the these uh, fetters, sakya ditti silapata baramasa vichikicha, first three fetters. When you, when you understand, when you know what discontentment complaining is, you know, really investigate it. And to investigate it, you have to really feel it, not just say, oh, that's, uh, I shouldn't be a complainer like this. This is wrong. Good monk would never give in to complaining. I'm just a complaining, discontented, selfish so-and-so. That's not... That's not it. That's that's another illusion. That's conceit again. But it's observing discontentment is like this. Feeling something's wrong, something lacking, either in the place, you know, or in oneself, or in somebody else, in whatever way it manifests. is like this. Discontentment Conceit. These are just words, you know, which oftentimes, you know, are like neg- neg- have a pejorative taint to them. So it's even you don't have to even label them as anything, you know. Like you don't have to call it conceit, but it's like this: this sense of self, self-worth, is like this. And this awareness then of that, you see, you're, you're actually in the relationship of Buddha to Dhamma. Instead of making the ego or the Sakyaditi the subject, like we do, of I'm just an ordinary monk, you know, nothing special. Uh, I'm trying to be modestly humble and... Uh, I'm trying to be a good monk by, I'm trying to be content with the four requisites. Try my best, even though, you know, somebody else has a better living space than I do. And I've been here longer. I still, I'm content anyway. Shelter for the night. 
you can convince yourself. But if you just listen without judgment, listen to hypocrisy, listen to fear and desire and and conceit on all levels, you know, bragging or boasting or or loathing yourself or whatever whatever way it manifests, be the knower. It is what it is. Thinking is like this. Feeling. Knowing it as Dhamma rather than knowing about how you should be and what a good monk and nun really should be and how a monastery should be. So in this way, the monastic life is is based on you know on on the four requisites in this alms mendicancy, shelter for one night, on, not as some kind of ideal that we should make ourselves into somebody who 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 fits that description, but there are skillful means to 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 use to understand the. What the way you are, the way your mind works, the greed or the discontentment or the arrogance or the ingratitude or selfishness. As we learn from all these, we learn from our own selfishness what it is. Selfishness, concern for myself, obsessions with myself, me and mine, I learn from that. I learn what selfishness is. I'm not just taking some, attached to an idea that I should never be selfish, even though I like that ideal. I like the idea of not being selfish. (laughs) Certainly a beautiful ideal, but what is selfishness, you know, and then and then not as something bad, but to learn from it from anger, from greed, from uh, conceit, from fear, from doubt, worry, anxiety, ingratitude. And as you learn then, you see, you know, from this, this Four Noble Truths, using that, then you see the suffering of attachment. So it's all about attachment out of ignorance. The cause of suffering, attachment out of ignorance to these desires that we create and we're, we're uh, bound into. If we don't know, if we're, if we're not mindful, then we just follow the momentum of the way we're conditioned. We just repeat the same things over and over until we drop dead kind of programmed in what we get from our parents and education and so forth we just we never question we're just bound into that for a lifetime without any you know reflection on it but then this this is the opportunity this retreat this awakened attention it's like this or whatever happens to you, whatever, you know, conditions arise during this time. See, it's to learn, to understand, to observe, rather than as obstructions in your path or or bad meditation, how we tend to describe it, you know, have a bad meditation today. Had a good meditation the other day. <laughs> This is useless. You mean you don't quite understand what you're talking about? You mean maybe you had a little more tranquility one day than you do today? <clears throat> but that's not what we're after. We're not after just trying to uh, go into a nice, peaceful state that we like, but letting life happen to us, to the way things move and change. 
the way this situation, formal meditation retreat, the the conditions that we're experiencing now, how they affect consciousness. Since we can know directly, it's like this, like this very moment. You know, awareness, awakened attention. And this I can't describe. You know, trying to put it into words, it's in, indescribable, but it's a knowing, still knowing. I'm not in a kind of trance or in a kind of stupid refusal of, uh, to, you know, to awaken. It's this awakened state is bright, conscious. Consciousness is light. Remember that we're all enlightened right now because we're all conscious. We are light, but we think we're something else. So you think you're this person or that person. So you gravitate, you know, you create your world around what you think you are and your habits. So the returning to this state of pure awareness, consciousness, it's not like actually returning, it's just remembering. You never leave it, but you just forget it. So it's, it's, it's reminding yourself to be awake and observe, pay attention. Be the, be the receiver, the knower, not the person that has views and opinions, but this direct knowing, the puto tamo sankho.